Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. All right, so uh, go ahead and get your Bibles out and turn to Isaiah chapter 9 today. Isaiah chapter 9 is where I want you. And uh, if we could get the slide up real quick, Dave. Go ahead and go to the first slide. Isaiah chapter 9, we're in this series called A Light Has Dawned, and we're going through Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, which is a a royal birth announcement from the Lord, uh, announcing the arrival of his own son. Uh, So I'm I'm excited to be going through this with you now. It's in person, so it's great. Now, how many of you, uh, just real quick, how many of you have already or are planning to send out a Christmas card this year? Just raise your hands. Right. How many of you have already done it? Keep your hands raised. How many of you have yet to do it, and we'll probably get to it in January? Yep, go figure. Well, I wanted to let you know that there is a Christmas card from my family to you and yours in the bulletin today. If you haven't seen that yet, this is just our our budget-friendly way to let you know that we love you and we care about you, but also to give you a little bit of the happenings going on in our family and our life. There's even um, a little little about our little puppy named Pippa. Uh, in there. You can see the picture on the back if you so choose, but that's something uh, we would love to give to you. Also, if you wouldn't mind just taking that card, show, uh, showing the picture and putting it on your, on your refrigerator or something, just as a prayer reminder so you could continue to pray for our family. Uh, we're convinced that we don't get to do anything of eternal significance apart from God's grace, and that's by faith alone. So we're praying that you would pray for us. We're asking that you would pray for us in that way. So guys, we, we love these little traditions, right? We love, we love getting to do these little things, writing out these Christmas cards, taking that perfect family photo, right? We, uh, it's just, it all comes together when you get that nice photo done, right? And, and some of you, like, you, you've already started to get Christmas cards. We've already started to get Christmas cards from people. And, and you, you can kind of tell the person's personality and who they're like based on their Christmas card, right? Uh, some of us get cards or write cards that are like a novel, they're five pages long, and they detail basically all these things that went on in your year, like including what you had for breakfast every morning. There's those kinds of people. And then there's the other kinds of people that do the total opposite, where it's, it's a, a little card that has a picture of the family. It just says, Merry Christmas, right? And it works. They both work. They're both great. I love both. Uh, but if you're Christian, you know that when you do that Christmas card thing, you, do, you have to add what to it? A scripture verse, Right? It's just, it's the rule of the game. You do a Christmas card, it's got to have a Christmassy Bible verse on it, right? Now, a solid choice would be the one that Lisa read earlier, Matthew 121, and you shall call him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That's my personal favorite. I try to root for it every year to get it on the Christmas card, but it doesn't make it. Caitlin gets to do her thing, right? There's also some pretty strong heavyweights in our passage uh, from Isaiah 9, some heavyweights that you could put on, oh, a light has dawned, or for unto us a child is born, right? All these different heavyweights uh, from our very own chapter here in chapter 9. I'm just, let me just say, I'm willing to put a, a pretty reasonable size wager on the table that says none of you have used Isaiah chapter 9, verse 5 as your Christmas card verse, It's an Advent passage. You know what it says? It says this. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Merry Christmas! That's an Advent verse. 
I, I, hey, I will pay somebody five bucks to put it on their Christmas card next year. Okay, you gotta, you gotta show it to me. You gotta prove it that you did it. But five bucks next year, if you can even remember that. Can you imagine the phone calls you'd get? You send out a Christmas card that has that verse on it and you get the call, hey, oh, hey, Merry Christmas, John. Yeah, uh, we got your Christmas card. Oh man, your family looks so great. But um, that verse, what on earth are you trying to tell me? Are, are we having problems? Do we need to go to counseling? Oh, only the concept, not every card, okay? Good call. Man, somebody's wanting to make some money. Now, obviously, this verse doesn't sound very Christmassy, does it? Bloodied garments of war, right? Boots trampling across the land. Doesn't sound Christmassy, but we are going to see this morning just how Christmassy it really is, okay? So let's, let's dive in. We're going to uh, build back the context starting in verse 1 of chapter 9. So I'm going to read, and you guys can follow along. This is the word of the Lord. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, to the Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing the spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let's just rewind the scene really bit, a little bit, right? Rewind the scene back Isaiah 7 and 8. You got to remember that there are invading armies getting ready to be let in and conquer Israel, just totally lay waste to all of Israel. Nothing's going to be left behind except darkness, misery, and gloom. It's just going to be miserable. But in this land, this land in verse 1, right? Galilee of the nations, which is Zebulun and Naphtali, all that land that was once plundered and impoverished over and over again, this land that was darkness, says is going to be made glorious at the coming Emmanuel baby, born of a virgin, right? So that's what we talked about two weeks ago. And then in verse two, we talked about how this light is going to dawn. It's going to shine on those people who dwelt in darkness. So guys, the atmosphere of joy is just building and building, starting in verse 1. Was, was once misery and gloom, now we're increasing in joy, right? The, the, the hope of redemption that's promised to a miserable people in darkness and gloom in verse 1. The, the building into a, a light of love that's shining on us, not just the dark world, but on us, revealing to us what's ultimately true about God, true about us, true about the world around us. And then this passage turns from talking uh, to, the, to, to that which is around them to God himself. Look, in verse three, it turns and addresses God. Verse three, you, God, have enlarged or quote unquote multiplied the nation. 
So this has in view that future time when a sign of a baby boy is going to appear, which, which means it's speaking of more than Jews. Right? We know ultimately looking behind, uh, back on Jesus' life, that his ministry wasn't just simply for the Jews, but that it included people like you and me, Gentiles, non-ethnic Jews. And so God is promising that there's going to be a people marked by faith who are going to experience the abundance of his kingdom. In this coming royal, God is promising to expand the borders of his people, to enlarge the dwelling of their tents, and to bring in children from all peoples. Talk about a reason for joy, right? And we're just even in first, the first sentence, the first phrase. Prosperity abounding all from God's gracious hand. And then look at verse three, the, the next part. You, God, have increased the nation's joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So I don't know about you. Look at me real quick. Have you connected the dots that God actually is for your joy, not your misery? That what what God says and what he commands and what he brings is actually designed for our wild joy. Have you connected those dots yet? It's important that we do. God isn't wanting us to be a miserable people. He wants us to be a joyful people. And God can cause our joy to multiply in abundance, no matter how dark the night may get. And he uses actually two illustrations here. The the, the prophet uses two illustrations of wild celebration to describe the kind of joy he's promising to instill in his people. Do you notice that? He says two things. He says, as the people rejoice at harvest time, and then as when they're dividing the spoils. Two illustrations. One is a harvest joy, and the second is a victorious joy. So let's think about that first one, the harvest joy. Picture yourself a farmer, right? You, you, you sow the seeds in view of that harvest, there's no other purpose for the seeds than the harvest. You view, uh, in view that harvest day and, and you spend months and months tending to the crop. You put in all sorts of effort day after day to keep that crop healthy. You bring in hired hands to clear out the weeds and that which would threaten it, knowing in the end that it'd all be worth it. So not only is harvest joy a joy of anticipation, but it's also a joy of abundance. It's, it's, you have multiplied the nation. God is going to lavish his people with an overwhelming abundance. So picture the farmer, right? You, 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 you've done all this work. You've, you've built it up and, and you have spent days and days harvesting the crop that you've tended to for months. And you're realizing that as you're harvesting in, you don't have enough storehouses. You don't have enough places. They're, they're bursting at the seam. Imagine that kind of joy and then multiply it by a million. David says this in Psalm chapter four. It's one of my favorite Psalms. He says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. So this is a kind of joy that we're talking about that's even more than just an actual harvest joy when grain and wine abound. It's a different kind of joy. It's a harvest joy of eternal significance. This is what God's promising to instill in his people, a harvest joy. But then there's also the second one, a victorious joy. He says, says, as they are glad when they divide 
the spoil. So let's, let's go back and picture ourselves, not as farmers now, but as villagers in a village, just a small village right outside of Jerusalem, right? And, and we've uh, been missing loved ones for a while, uh, husbands and fathers and sons. They're all gone off to war for months. We don't see them. We saw the processional. We counted how many carts and, and chariots went by because we know that, that if it's greater than that, there was victory. If it was smaller than that, there was defeat. And we're waiting and waiting. And for months and months, we're looking to the horizon, waiting for our loved ones, for that army to come back. And, and after a few months, we finally see them break the horizon and they're coming. And we're paying attention and we're hearing their footsteps. And we're noticing that that, that processional is not smaller. It's three times larger. And as they're walking, we hear shouts of joy and celebration and they're singing, and they're coming into the village now, and they're walking through the streets, and they're singing, and they're celebrating, and people are coming out of their homes, and the soldiers are cheering like crazy, and they're tossing silver and gold and cloth into the streets, and we all get to enjoy the plunder that they've won in their conquests as they march into Jerusalem. Imagine as the riches just ride in, this is the kind of joy. I'm not, I'm not saying that God provides us those riches, but he provides us a joy that's even more abundant than when those things happen. This is wild celebration. This is outrageous, radical joy that God is promising for his people. A victorious joy and a harvest joy. Are you tracking with me? He says that's going to characterize his nation. But how? How is he going to do it? Is he just going to tell us to be joyful? As Christians, we tend to think that that's how we just become joyful, right? Oh, no, you need to be more joyful. Okay, and then you go do it. Like it's that simple. No, there has to be rooted in belief and faith, right? And there's got to be something that God does in order for us to experience that joy. So how is he going to increase this radical, outrageous joy in us, in his people? Why can his people be so joyful? Well, verse 4 is the actual answer. Look at what it says. For you, God, have shattered the nation's oppressive yoke, and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. Okay. Guys, God is promising that there would be a day when he would totally obliterate the yoke, the staff on the shoulder, and the rod, which are all instruments used to dominate people and force them to do their work or bidding. They also picture heavy burdens put on backs, so for, for Israel, this, this meant that those foreign nations that were going to come in and capture them and make them slaves, God would break their rule over Israel one day. And for us, it means God is going to break our enemies' rule over us. Do you realize you have three enemies of your soul? Satan, sin, and death. Three enemies of our soul that God here is promising to obliterate their reign over us. God is promising that Satan and sin and death's dominion over us will be totally destroyed in this coming baby boy. So this is the cause of their joy. 
You've done this, God. You've multiplied our joy because you've done this. You've set us free from the cruel tyranny of Satan's schemes, of sin's demands, and of death's sting. Church, I gotta ask, do you see the gospel shining through here? And it gets even better. He says he's going to destroy and break their oppressive rule like he did on the day of Midian. Like he did on the day of Midian. Does that sound familiar to any of you? It's a Bible story. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to tell it to you, but I would recommend that in your Bibles, you circle the word, words day of Midian. Okay, and then I'm going to give you the address. It might have a cross-reference in your Bible already, but it's Judges chapter 7, verses 19 through 25. The story about the day of Midian. Judges chapter 7, verses 19 through 25. Let me tell you what happens there. Midian is a foreign nation that God allowed to conquer Israel because, you know, Israel was just doing that thing which it really did best, and that was rebel. And after seven years of their rule over Israel, God raises up a judge or quote unquote a hero for Israel and his name was Gideon. And I got to just go ahead and warn you, Gideon's a chump of a dude. He's pretty wimpy, straight wimpy, right? So we meet Gideon uh, in a wine press, which is a massive hole in the ground and he's not making wine as you think you would ought to in a wine press. No, he's threshing out grain, which means he's got all of his harvest and he's thrown it down into this hole in the ground. And what he's doing is he's taking a fork and he's throwing it up into the air really high just so that enough so that all you'd see coming out of that hole is grain, 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 (laughs) right? It's like, and he's so scared of the Midianites that he's down there hiding but doing the work of the harvest. And what's even funnier is that the angel comes up to this guy and he he says, God is with you, O mighty man of valor. (laughs) It's kind of a sense of humor of the Lord. But God miraculously uses this Gideon to raise an army of 32,000 troops and forms this army to war against the Midianites and set Israel free. But for God's purposes, he decides that he wants to whittle the numbers down a little bit. What does he do? He tells Gideon, hey, if any of you are scared of the war, just go home. You want to know how many people left? 22,000. There were 32 minus 22, which gives us 10,000 soldiers. Going up against an army of 135,000. Oh, but God says, nope, that's still too many. Mm-hmm. And through various means, he whittles it down to 300 men. And then in the middle of the night, God sends these 300 men led by Gideon to surround the camp of Midian's army. And at Gideon's signal, they start blowing their trumpets and shouting and breaking jars and raising their torches and waving them. Now, to be honest, those sorts of tactics might work on a black bear rummaging through the trash in your backyard, 
or maybe a small troop of 10 and they might scare and run off. But here, this massive army just begins to implode. Right? They start killing each other out of despair. And all Gideon and his 300 men are doing are just sitting outside the camp watching God cause this massive army to ruin itself. All because they're making a little noise. 120,000 soldiers die without Israel swinging a single sword. And this is how God will break the oppression of those who were over Israel, over his nation, as on the day of Midian. It's with a remarkably stunning victory by no effort of God's people. Our oppressors, won't be destroyed by our efforts. God is going to do it all and he's going to cause his enemies to implode on himself. Think about it. Satan wielded his, his weapon of death against the son of God, Jesus. And what did that cause Satan? His kingdom of darkness to implode on itself. So you know what this means? When it comes to setting ourselves free from the true enemies of our soul, Satan, sin, and death. When it comes to that, our best efforts are really just a bunch of noise in the background of God's mighty work. I mean, just think about it, that story. Do you think Gideon and the 300 men left that scene thinking, man, we just nailed it. Hey, Phil, great job breaking those pots. You literally killed them somehow. All the credit goes to us. No. As on the day of Midian means we sit back and we make a joyful noise as God comes in and triumphs. God conquered them all. God won the war. God shattered their oppressive rule just as he promises to do in this coming son. He's promising to set us free from the tyranny of our enemies, not by our own works and keeping with the law and being good enough people, not by that, but all in his own work and doing. Guys, this is literally so gospelicious. God increases the joy of his people when he, through his coming son, just totally destroys the oppressive rule of Satan's sin and death. In other words, God doesn't need the accompaniment of your good works to save you and to rescue you. No. God didn't ask Gideon, hey, I'm going to start this, but when I get like halfway, I need you to jump in and finish this because I can only do so much. No. Gideon and the army just watched as God took on and conquered a whole army. This is how God is promising to secure our rescue. God is promising he will secure our salvation and our freedom. So, brothers and sisters, this is the reason for our joy. This is why our joy abounds as in the harvest and is in victory. In dividing the spoils, God promises to lay waste 
to every vice and every sin that dwells within, Satan's schemes and his powers, and death's sting. This is what it means to believe in Jesus alone. So this is the joy of anticipation. This is the joy of harvest. This is the joy of victory. God's stunning victory. And let me just get to verse five, because I know we're all wondering, just how stunning of a victory is it going to be? Right? Just how badly is this coming royal victor going to decimate all forms of oppression that are in dominion over us? Just how mighty will his power be? Look at verse 5. For every trampling boot of the battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. So picture this. We're all in the Lord's army in song. And the the battle's over. We've seen God do incredible, mighty works through no efforts of our own. And the valley floor is just covered with bodies slain on the ground. And there's this massive fire just raging right in the middle of it all. And each of us are going and we're collecting the boots and the garments that are soiled with their blood. And we're going and we're tossing it as fuel for the fire. A signal fire of God's miraculous victory. This is Christmas. Right? This is a symbol of absolute unquestionable victory, right? Like, like I don't know how many times uh, you've won a battle and had somebody else take your clothes off, right? You, you don't win that battle. You've lost if you're leaving that battle naked, right? It, this here is utter victory over the enemy. He's going to fight the battle to win the war and end all wars, there will be no more battles after the sun shows up. He's going to make war to end war. So, guys, Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection was the fire signal that sin and death's dominion have been shattered, that Satan has been disarmed. In fact, I love what Charles Spurgeon says in commenting on this passage. He says it this way. He says, My sins, which were the weapons of my foes, the Lord piles in heaps, what mountain of prey? But see, he brings the firebrand of his love from the altar of his sacrifice and he sets fire to the gigantic pile. See how they blaze. They are utterly consumed forever. Our sin, Satan, and death piled on the fire. Guys, isn't this amazing? God is putting the heart of the gospel at the core of this royal birth announcement. Not through our might or our power, but by him alone would we receive all blessing. Guys, God is announcing to the world centuries before Jesus even showed up that our rescue and our radical joy are the spoils of Jesus's victory, not ours. That our, our rescue are being set free from the oppression of our enemies and our joy that accompanies the freedom are all just spoils of Jesus' victory. 
So in other words, our greatest experiences of joy and gladness in this life will not come when we improve ourselves or attempt to add on to what God has done. As radical, even wild joy will be our strength when God fights the fight, when he wins the war, and he sets us free from sin and death. So, brothers and sisters, I need to remind you again and again that the call of the gospel is not to come and fight to improve yourself and set yourself free. No, the call of the gospel is really, hey, I've got this. If you just let me come in, I'll, I'll, I'll win the victory. You can just make a little bit of noise. Bring a little praise. No, the call of the gospel is to invite this Emmanuel in to totally break the dominion of sin and death that Satan wields over our lives. And when you and I do that, in other words, when we're willing to let go of our trying to be better people and trying to save ourselves, when we let go of that and we let God in, that's when joy will truly be multiplied in our lives. So at this point, I, I think I need to address two kind of groups of people here today because I, I think you might fit into at least one of them. Um, for, for those of, I, I believe most of us here have, have embraced the light. We've, we've received Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We trust in him. We've yielded to the call of the cross and we've died to ourselves and picked up our cross and have started to follow Jesus as our Savior and Lord. And, and, and yet the joy that's described in verse three, seems more elusive to us than Bigfoot. For some reason, maybe bitterness has, has made you get annoyed with all these promises of this joy that God says he's going to bring to those who follow him. Right? God keeps saying I'm going to have this joy, but I don't. Where is it? Well, First off, I would remind you that just because you aren't experiencing joy doesn't mean the promise is broken. Your experience doesn't determine the truthfulness of the word. The word determines the truthfulness of your experience. Can we take that again? Your experience doesn't determine the truthfulness of this. The truthfulness of this determines what we experience. So guys, this passage isn't broken. These promises haven't failed. Just because you aren't experiencing joy. What's more than likely happening is you're depending upon certain levels of accomplishment of your own doing. Certain levels of behavior modification or self-betterment. All to find your joy. That if you like act a certain way or try to put on a certain kind of behavior, you're going to find joy at the end of that twisted rainbow. But that's not how it works here. The possibility that you're hypocritically embracing sin and thinking you can still have the joy of God is still available. As one of the things that we have to realize I need to be careful how I say this. Is that 
you and I are one of those things that Jesus conquered. When we're willing to agree with the Lord that we were once in rebellion and our wills were bent against the Lord until he pierced through the prison bars with his light and the chains fell off and our souls are free, that we were something that needed to be triumphed over. In fact, that's what 2 Corinthians talks about when Jesus leads us in the train of his processional robes, right? That's us as his, his spoils. We are Jesus's reward. So what I'm getting at is, is if we're trying to improve and better ourselves in a moralistic, therapeutic kind of way, we're not actually holding on to the promise of Christmas. Because the promise of Christmas is that God is going to multiply our joy when we behold his face and recognize all that he is victorious over in our lives. And he is victorious over an abundance of enemies that were once oppressing us. Guys, we must walk in the gospel promise that, that, that Jesus isn't just simply providing a salvation or a rescue, but he's inherently making us into a, a radical people of joy, progressively. And all of that is a work of triumphing over more and more of us. So that's what I would say to that first group of people. Just ask God to shine his revealing light in those areas where you're like depending on your self-effort and you're depending on your personal strength to accomplish what only really God can do. Because the more you abide in God's power to defeat sin's oppression and its existence in your life, the more joy will rise in you. So that's group number one. Joy will rise not when we fight our own battles, but when we invite God in to win them for us. And then there's a second group of people that I, I feel really led to address. And, and it's those of you who may be in here and you've just been skeptical of God for some time. Maybe more recently your skepticism has increased or, or you've had it inherently for a pretty, pretty good time of your life. And you've acknowledged his existence. You're able to go that far, but you can't. You can't live under his reign and rule because you're just too skeptical of his character. What this gospel promise says in these verses is that as much as you think you are your own God, you are actually ruled by something else. There's something else ruling the throne of your heart and it's not actually you. There's an inherent cancer or an inherent indwelling sin that that we're all born with. And it's the authority really over our lives, bending us to its will. It's driving you more than you realize. And it's not good. And, and maybe I can say that maybe this is why your life seems so unfulfilling. Maybe it's it's why your life has been so unsatisfying. It's, it's why peace maybe seems just really elusive 
for you. Maybe, maybe you've spent your life chasing dreams and lusts that have never amounted to more than just a whim. You've depended on your own strength to get by and it's failed you again and again and again. And you've built up your pile of good works. And really all, that do, all that's doing is just piling up a bunch of currency that the, door, the Lord doesn't even count. If you're skeptical of God, if you've not received Jesus, guys, God is inviting you today to trust in his royal son. He's knocking at the door of your heart with Jesus Christ, the one who truly was, is, and forever will be good enough to secure our rescue from the darkness that once dominated our lives. And with a stunning victory, bring us from darkness to light, to bring us from death into life. And I'm promising you that when you accept God's invitation to experience this, to, to see him set you free from sin, death, and Satan, in this crazy invitation, he's actually inviting you into a deep, radical wild joy. He's inviting us into true freedom. He's inviting us into real victory. One that lasts into the ocean of eternity. Guys, this is the heart of Christmas. This is at the heart of the gospel. Rescue and radical joy won by Jesus' conquests alone. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.